0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor.
1: And I'm Jim Townsend.
0: And we're so glad you can join us. February 24th marks the two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Heading into the third year of war, Ukraine faces a challenging outlook. No longer are U.S. and European leaders talking about Russia's strategic failure in Ukraine. Yes, NATO has expanded. Moscow has lost its leverage over Europe as it reduced its dependence on Russian oil and gas. And sanctions and export controls will constrict Russia's economy and its ability to innovate. But having blunted Ukraine's 2023 offensive and and aimed signs of U.S. reticence to sustain military support for Ukraine – the Kremlin appears confident that things are heading in Russia's direction. In the last week, Russian forces took Avdivka after four months of fighting for the city, a loss that the Biden administration has blamed on the US Congress and the quote, and quote unquote, cost of congressional inaction. Anxiety over this outlook was running high at the Munich Security Conference, where the Allies grappled with the reality of a rising threat from Russia underscored by the killing of Alexei Navalny and the disclosure of Russian plans to put a nuclear weapon in space, and the transatlantic community's lack of preparedness, especially in terms of the defense industry, to address the rising challenge. To discuss where Ukraine stands two years after Russia's brutal invasion, we're happy to welcome two former U.S. ambassadors to Ukraine, Bill Ta- Taylor and Marie Ivanovich Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Edward. Very brief introductions. Uh, Bill is the Vice President for Europe and Russia at the U.S. Institute of Peace. He served as U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009 and as the Charge d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv in 2019. And Marie is a Senior Fellow in the Russia and Eurasia Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace And a non resident fellow at the Institute for Study of Diplomacy of Georgetown University. And she served as the US ambassador to Ukraine from 2016 to 2019 and to the Republic of Armenia and Kyrgyzstan. All right. So, in the opening, I gave a relatively bleak picture of where things stand, but I'd love to hear from both of you in your own views, kind of your assessment of where things stand at this two year mark of Russia's invasion. Bill, maybe we'll start with you.
2: Thanks, Andrew. So, <clears throat> two years in, um, first year was uh, was marked by real advances uh, by the Ukrainians, pushing the Russians back out after they invaded, as you said, uh, two years ago. Um, the second year is much more of a stalemate, although that term has generated some controversy in Kyiv. We can talk about that. But the stalemate appears on the ground, it is, it's a fair point. That the that the line of contact, the kind of 900 kilometer line, hasn't changed that much in in over a year. Um, and, uh, however, the Russians are making some progress, as you've just mentioned, um, marginal progress, but nonetheless noticeable, measurable, identifiable progress. Um, and uh, it's not a coincidence that it happens as the as the questions arise about this stability of our flow of, of funds and weapons and ammunition uh, so but uh, the other thing I would say is amazing accomplishment by the Ukrainians in the Black Sea um you know they don't have a Navy they don't have the Black Sea Fleet the, their black is gone. Uh, the Russians are operating out of Sevastopol um, and the Ukrainians have pushed the Russians back out of the western part of the Black Sea so much so, that the Ukrainians have been able to re-establish a trade, re flow of grain exports uh, to the world, but it also helps their economy, of course. So, so that's a big thing. The other, the other thing I'd mention, uh, Andrew, just bef- I'd love to get Masha's thoughts, um, is that in the air, the Ukrainians have done some su- surprising, audacious actions. So uh, they've knocked out a good number of Russian aircraft. Um, they have struck deep um, into uh, Crimea. Um, they have they have struck at uh, military targets, uh, mostly in occupied uh, uh, Ukraine, but also actually into Russia with their own weapons. So so they've taken the offensive to the Russians as well. So it's it's uh, it's been mixed for these two years. They're holding on. It's grim. They need us. They need the support that you'd mentioned. Yeah, so I'll
3: just jump in here. I'm in violent disagreement with everything Bill just said. <laughs> so look, we're going to have to manufacture some controversy. But um, I, I guess I'd like to just note a couple of things. One is that we're marking, obviously, the two year total invasion um, of uh, Ukraine by 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 Russia. Um, we're also marking, uh, really, the ten year. Uh, uh, anniversary of, of the war, because as as you know, uh, the war really started in, in uh, 2014, and it started on the back of the revolution of dignity. And yesterday we marked um, the deaths of the so-called Heavenly Hundred, where um, Ukrainian forces, perhaps under uh, Russian guidance and control, um, brutally mowed down uh, over 100 uh, Ukrainian protesters. So there are a lot of um, there's a lot going on in this space, and it's not coincidental that the war started uh, at, at about the time of the Revolution of Dignity, because the Revolution of Dignity was about getting out from under Russia's thumb. It was about turning west. It was about rule of law. It was about the future of their children, minus Russia, minus the Soviet legacy. And so I think it's important to kind of put it in that context. And so you know, you said at the beginning that that, you know, we, um, you know, at the beginning of the war, it, it seemed that Russia was at a point of strategic failure. Um, and I would also say a number of tactical failures as well. And, um, you know, now I think what we're looking at is, um, you know, I I, I hope not, um, because I, like Bill, am an optimist, but we're looking at American failure. We're not looking at Ukrainian failure, because the Ukrainians are still as brave and as um, capable as they have ever been. And, you know, as, as Bill alluded to, they are doing all sorts of creative things with not very much. Um, but, you know, they, they can win on the ground, they can win on the air, they can win on the, in the sea, um, but they can lose right here in Washington. And so we need to uh, figure out how we can get, you know, more supplies um, to uh, to the Ukrainians. I think that's really important.
0: Yeah it's hard to have a conversation about this without returning to the United States and maybe bill just to get and I'd love to hear both of your thoughts about the likelihood that the that the supplemental or that the that the US assistance will pass. I know I've really struggled kind of in answering that question. We've heard from the Biden administration some optimism, you know, back into the fall that it would eventually get done and here we are almost into March. Uh, and it still hasn't passed. So, Bill, I don't know if you have a sense of how that's likely to play out in the coming weeks or months.
2: Well, Andrea, um, we notice that that bill passed overwhelmingly, well, 70 to 29 in the Senate. So that's a big bipartisan vote. You don't get many of those these days. Um, so 22 Republicans joined most, almost all of the Democrats, in support of this bill that had the Ukrainian package, the Ukraine package, as well as Israeli Indopact, uh, but the big 61 billion dollars was was there. Um uh, and you're right, and now it goes to the House. Um and the in the House, um, the question is: can it get a vote? And there are all kinds of questions and all kinds of ways to get it to a vote. If it does come to a vote, I am convinced smarter people than I am, and know this House better than I do, or tell me, tell us all, I'm sure, that it'll pass, just like in the Senate. 70 to 29 um, uh, in in the Senate, and some some bipartisan majority, Republicans and Democrats in the House will pass it if they can just get a vote. And, And as I say, there are ways to do that. There are people talking about a new compromise. They would add something on the border. You know, the border provisions have been in and out at the requests of the of, of some of the people in the House. Um, they're be talking about it back in. Some people are talking about separating it out. Just a vote on Ukraine. Just a vote on Israel. Just a vote on border. Uh, uh, they're talking about this this provision. This uh, this this mechanism. Uh, the discharge petition that uh, requires 218 votes. Or, or singing. I
0: never heard about a discharge petition. Now we know it. Now we all
2: know what a discharge petition is, and and we know um, that it's not easy. Uh, it takes 218, so all the Democrats and some Republicans would have to go against their leadership um, and sign this. And we know it takes 30 days. It does not that quick. 30 days, by the way, is a long time on the battlefield in Ukraine, yes. as we can see as we can see today. So all, all to say, Andrew. Uh, there are ways that it can happen that this pa- this package can pass. There are there are people who are convinced convinced that it is in our strategic interest that this is a if we don't do this this is a strategic failure that we will look back on. Masha has already talked about how it focuses on Washington. If we don't pass this, um, we will look back on this as a turning point, as a turning point um, in 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 history. It's not it's not hyperbolic to say that. Um, So I think this is a good, and enough people understand that, that I am convinced that they will get it to a vote.
0: Masha, anything you want to add, but also um, maybe talk a little bit about how all of this politics is being perceived in Ukraine, to the extent that you're hearing from your friends, former colleagues, et cetera. I mean, what what does the view look like from Kiev?
3: Yeah. So um, I I would just say um, on a perhaps slightly positive note uh, with regard to the Hill, um, I was talking to somebody last night who has many decades of experience uh, with these sorts of matters, and she was um, positive. Uh, she thought something was going to pass and perhaps soon that, as Bill mentioned, there are many different mechanisms and ways that this could happen, including um, perhaps adding it to um, the budget uh, bill that needs to come up um, You know, as soon as uh, members return to Washington. Um, so I, you know, I, I I take some hope, uh, from that because it's, um, yeah, for those of us who are not experts on, um, you know, all of the mechanisms, um, on the Hill, it, Kind of looks like a a mess from the outside um, and maybe a a little bit of a mess from the inside as well. But we also know um, that that's the way legislation gets made um, and it usually does move forward. And she seemed to think that something would pass um, this year, certainly. It may not be the full, you know, 60 um, plus billion dollars. It may not be in the packages that we're talking about now, but that something would uh, would move forward. And I emphasize the same thing that um, Bill just mentioned, which is that. Time really matters. I mean, we can measure it in lives, not only, you know, the soldiers in the field, uh, but civilians in Ukraine. I mean, we're seeing the Russians just go after any, any target. And apparently they think that civilians are fair game as well. Um, and and then of course it's uh, you know, referring to the the strategic issue that Bill mentioned. I mean, we are sending a message to our allies, to our adversaries, and of course Ukraine, that we are not supporting our, our allies and our partners we are not supporting our values and we are not even supporting our national security interests i mean what kind of a message does that send to the world and it will take us if 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 we don't recover um from from this um, it will take us a long time to get back our reputation as a reliable um ally uh you know around the world so the um you know how, how do the ukrainians take it As you can imagine, uh, they are very, very worried, um, and they are, um, you know, we are still uh, the most important partner, and so Ukrainians never fail to tell me, and I'm sure all of us on this conversation, how grateful they are for American support, for American assistance, um, for everything that we have provided and that hopefully we will continue to provide. Um, But they are very worried. And, um, you know, they they haven't just been worried since the fall, Um, you know, over a year ago, maybe maybe a year and a half ago, they started thinking hard about how to become more independent on uh, with regard to um, both weapon systems and ammunition, um, how to build up their uh, defense industrial base. Uh, they've been working on that. We are starting to see some of the fruits of of that, uh, not only in terms of business deals with American industry and European industry, um, but also on, on on the battlefield itself. And so that um, that is a good thing. But at this point, they need us, and um, and we really need to step up. So what are my friends telling me? I'll tell you what one friend told me. Um, she said, "You know, she's she's pretty worried, um, but she said, you know, what I focus on." is what I can do, how I can make a difference. And, um, you know, if, if I think about everything too much, um, then I, you know, spiral downwards. But if I think about what I am doing, how I am making a difference, how I can help Ukraine, that is really helpful. And I think that's an important message, you know, for all of us that, you know, everybody can't do everything, but you can do your part.
1: That's fantastic. That that's uh Masha that is the a very thrilling uh thing that you just said. Uh you and Bill I have to say I, I agree with everything you're saying and I'm so glad that you are who you are and speaking out and spreading this message uh of 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 uh of not just some hope there but also this this urgency and I just uh you know Godspeed to both of you on this. We're doing our best on Brussels sprouts as well. Uh but but um let me just say, uh, let me ask a question about, uh, two years ago about Zelensky, something that's always I've always wondered about, and I'm sure there's a good explanation. You know, the Zelensky that we saw in the run-up to that invasion two years ago, the second invasion, um, as as he was being visited by Bill Burns and others with the, with the intel, and the intel was being released, uh, his response was very different than what we saw after the invasion. After the invasion, Zelensky was was he was positively Churchillian, standing in the road with his team, saying, "We're not leaving." And you know, I don't need uh, a ride; I need ammunition. I mean, my God, that was just that was thrilling to hear. But before that, um, it was very different. Very different uh, public uh, public statements and his actions. The Ukraine military was taking steps; they were dispersing their forces. They were doing some very good things. Uh, but it was different coming out of Zelensky. What what was it that I mean, obviously the invasion changed his mind, but but what was he trying to achieve beforehand? Did he feel that 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 he didn't believe the US? Did he feel that he could handle Putin himself? What was going on
2: in Zelensky's mind, do you think? Masha, you want
3: that first? Bill, why don't you take that? You know him better.
2: So uh, so Masha and I were both in cave um about that time, Jim. Um, in January of, of 2022. Um, um, and, and so this is like three weeks before the invasion. Um, uh, I sat down with him. Ben Hodges and I had about an hour with him. Um, and again, uh, he had gotten the briefings that you mentioned. Um, he knew what we knew. Um, he didn't, you're right. He didn't, like a lot of people, I will say, uh, even people who got the briefings, and probably got... Andrea's briefings, and uh, you know, even people who got, didn't want to believe that he was actually going to pull that trigger. Uh, yeah. Zelensky, Zelensky. Um, well, he ran, Jim. You you remember he ran in 2019 when Masha was there, um, uh, when when she was the ambassador. He ran on two planks. One was to end the war on his terms by sitting down with with Putin. He thought he could sit down with Putin and solve it. Um, and the second one, of course, was to not to fight corruption, but defeat corruption. The two very idealistic flanks uh, uh, in his platform. But yes, he did think that he could somehow work it out at the beginning, work it out with Putin. It, that obviously didn't happen. Turned to the United States, needed us, uh, got the briefings from Bill Burns. Uh, when we were there in January of 2022, Three, it was still very partisan there. I mean, we talked to you know, opposition leaders. Um, and they were doing what opposition leaders do uh, again before the invasion, uh, and they criticized and they were pointing out the problems of Zelensky. And Zelensky's ratings were down. You know, he was elected with what seventy-three percent of the vote, and he was down to in the thirties yeah. um, at, at this time before the invasion. Before, as you say, he stepped up with all the all the courage that you just described. Uh, but he was he was down in the polls, um, and he didn't, and and he was worried about the economy. And he mentioned this to us. He Ben He he mentioned. He said, "Look, you know, I fact, as I, I asked him about this. The, the 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 debate at that time. This the uh, the word at the time was imminent. Yeah. Um, and 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 Andrea and team were back here saying it's imminent. And Bill Burns had probably used imminent when he was was out there. Um, and so let's get to hear that. He didn't want to hear imminent. I mean, he, he knew there's a problem. Knew there's a threat. Knew there's a possibility. But he didn't want panic. He didn't, yeah. he didn't want to send Ukrainians across the border um, into, into Poland? Um, yeah. It's remained So all that's going on, again, criticism from at home. Um, that's what he's going on. And then, as you say, stepped up. Um, yeah. And uh, I need ammunition, not a run. Yeah. yeah, I
0: think the economic piece, and Masha would be interested in your view, is really key because I, I remember from that time too, like we, many people were convinced that Putin would just keep the troops on the border, dial up the pressure, dial it back as he needed to, and really, and at meanwhile, Ukrainian markets were, were collapsing and tumbling. And so he was trying to portray the sense of confidence yep. and and strength so that Putin couldn't basically destroy the Ukrainian economy just by camping his troops out on the border so I I think you know I don't know if you remember it that way too Masha but anything you want to add to that and I mean anything you can say about the Zelensky before and the Zelensky after I mean is there are you surprised
3: that he stepped into this role the way that he did yeah, so um, I, I I think you're right, Andrea, that, um, I mean, obviously, everything um, Bill was saying, I, I, I agree with, um, but I think there is a huge economic component to it, um, what you said. Um, but also, uh, I think he was worried um, that our public warnings also, I mean, he was pretty mad at us, uh, as you'll recall. Um, That's right. He was worried that our public warnings and then what Uh, He viewed as the unnecessary step of evacuating uh, the embassy um, without, you know, much uh, prior warning um, that that would create the panic that um, Bill was referring to, um, but also tank the economy. And I think, you know, some of us were thinking, well, you know, if the Russians invade... (laughs) You know, there might be some of that going on. Um, But I think from his point of view, um, he was worried about the economy. He was worried about panic. He was worried about, you know, if you say, yeah, the Russians are going to invade, people are going to start looking to you and saying, and what are you going to do about it? And how are you going to respond? And um, while, as Jim says, the, the, the military was taking there was a lot of discipline actually about what people were saying publicly versus what people were doing privately, Uh, not privately, but uh, underneath the radar. Um, But, um, but there was, I I think just a a lot of concern uh, about all, all of that.
2: Go ahead, Bill. So so just one thing to add exactly what, what Masha was just saying. Um, So just my last trip, so I I got back three weeks ago and on that trip um, uh, last month, um, I sat down with the senior official um, uh, in the national security environment there. And he was remembering the briefings he got in October. He was very specific about the October briefings uh, of 2021. Um, when we all remember there were all these Russian troops in the North and Belarus in the East and the South coming up from uh, on the border in, in Crimea. Um, and he remembers the briefings that he got from U.S. authorities. Um, and, and we all remember those, And we and, you know, um, the, the Europeans didn't believe it. Um, as I say, Zelensky didn't want to believe it. The military took it seriously and took some steps, as, as Masha was just saying. But the interesting thing that he told me just uh, three weeks ago was the tone of that briefing was they're coming. The Russians are coming. And you guys don't stand a chance. That wow. was so interesting to me. It was I, I had not heard that aspect, but he remembers that bitterly, very mm-hmm. well. He said, You guys didn't think we stood a chance. And here we did, we stood up and we stopped. And all the things that Jim just described about the about, uh, heroism, the courage um, of the Ukrainians, including President Zelensky. So it, it was that aspect of uh of this warning um that, that struck me.
0: That is something that's so important. You know, we talk a lot about the successes in this war. And oftentimes U.S. intelligence comes up as something that we did really well in terms of the vocal warnings and other things. But it's really important also to remember the failure, which is, as you said, Bill, that the estimate was that the Ukrainians would be run over. And that had tremendous policy implications because then we chose not to arm and equip and prepare them for it because of that. And so, yes, there's been so many things that U.S. intelligence has done right. helped the cohesion of the alliance and the rapid responses on sanctions and other things. But man, that's a huge failure that I think we don't talk about enough because it really changed our willingness to support them in the earliest days.
3: Could, could I jump
1: Yeah, I, just to foot stomp that, I, that's absolutely right. And I remember so well 2014. Because uh, I was the DASD for Europe NATO then, uh, and, uh, and and hearing after the after after the little green men were infiltrating Crimea, and some of the Ukraine military establishments were surrounded, or there was and the and the feeling in the bureaucracy in Washington in the Pentagon was these guys don't stand a chance, and we were telling them, and and at that time in 2014, certainly it was a worse situation than 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 two years ago, but. But we were telling them, don't, you know, th- don't put up any resistance. Uh, you know, we got to figure this out. And and so there's always there's always been this kind of background noise of, uh, you know, these guys, they're just not ready for this. And so that that story just really struck home. We still had that in our mind. And Andrea, you and I remember, too. I mean, as we were in the run up to that invasion, we were talking all the time and going, you know, uh, you, uh, echoing what we were hearing around Washington and, and our own thinking about, you know, is this going to be a bloodbath? The f- videos of the tanks on the trains going and taking their jump off positions and, you know, every night seeing that uh, the drum beats of this, you know, uh, and I think it really goes to Zelensky and his people where when the invasion finally happened, they didn't let that stop them. They absolutely put us out of their minds, and they went to the front lines. And I have to say, it really, I, given given the the static they were getting from the West, you have to really give uh, a kudos to the courage that the Ukrainians had to to say, "Hey, you guys, just get out of the way and watch what we're going to do." Yeah, and 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 they did.
3: Yeah. I I if if I could just jump in here and 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 say I think that one of the constants over the last uh, two and a half years is the underestimation of Ukraine. I mean, you've just outlined it at the you know the beginning, um, but it has continued over the last two years, and it is continuing now. You know, Ukraine doesn't have a chance, you know, which is one of the, the major reasons um some cite for not providing assistance. And it is just wrong. Ukraine has demonstrated over and over again uh, that it can win if only we would help.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and that kind of thinking made us not give them the equipment they needed last year. No. Not They needed the tanks and the F-16s last year before the, before they went off on the offensive. Uh, so, it, but you're absolutely right. That kind of thinking is just, has undercut them time and time again.
3: Yeah. You know, um, Colin Powell used to have this uh, expression, optimism is a force multiplier. And I think, you know, here we're seeing the exact opposite.
0: Yeah, a slight transition, um, but spill, something you said you were talking about, we were talking about the early days before the war and how kind of political and partisan things were. That obviously has changed tremendously with the war and there's been a, you know, all everyone has been willing to put the political differences aside to rally around behind the cause. But are you, you know, there's there, with the, um, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but the tensions between Zelensky and Zeluzhny that have captivated the media's attention, obviously amplified by Russian information, trying, I think, to, to aggravate people's perceptions of those political divisions. Um, what's your sense of what the domestic political situation is like currently?
2: Yeah, it, it is changing, Andrew. No, I think you're exactly right. Um, and, and you're exactly right about in the beginning. It was just everyone fell in behind Zelensky. Um, the opposition leaders, um, they offered their total support. Um, there was no daylight between the military and civilians. It was It was amazing. Um, it's ground on. Here we are, two years in, um, and I have to say that there are now voices, concerns, you know, cracks in the uh, um, in, in the unity. Um, unity is going to be very, very important going forward. It's going To be very important, um, and 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 politics is starting to to enter in again. I mean, you talk to some of the same opposition folks that okay. I talked to before the war. Um, and even some new ones, um, and they say, you know, we wish we were in the government. You know, there's talk about, well, maybe they should form a, a government of national unity. And and uh, and people in the Rada said, you know, I wish we were, you know, more influential, that we had more say about uh, about these kind of things. Um, people in civil society concerned are still about the kind of the centralized nature of the of the media. Um, at this point. Um, you mentioned earlier, Adria, questions about about elections. We can get into that. Um, I don't sense the, the the demand for elections um coming through at this point, um, despite what I just said about these kind of voices of concern and irritation and wishing they were part, you know, making more input into the decision making. Um the elections just don't seem, you know, we can talk about why elections are probably not a good idea right now. And I think the government has come around to that. And if they flirted with them before, they're not now. Um, and civil society is, is also uh, there. But in answer to your question about the politics, it's starting to reemerge. Uh, last thing I'll say is the the polls, when you asked Ukrainians, um, again, it was 92 percent at the beginning. You know, um, you know no compromise. Um, you know, we will... Fight for every inch. Uh, total support for Zelensky. Well, that's starting to come down. Of course, it's starting to come down. Um, the the polls up for Zelensky are high. For Zelensky, it's still high, but lower than Zelensky. Um, but there, and the, and the number of people who are willing to consider a compromise are go. The number has gone from something like six um, percent to twelve percent. You know, it's still not big. It's still not big, but do you see the trend and you can understand it. I mean, they've been fighting, not just the soldiers on the front lines have been fighting for two years, but the society has been under fire for two years.
0: Yeah, Marie, anything you want to add to that? And then I'll throw in one additional question, which is kind of the economic situation. So we've obviously been quite focused on the sustained U.S. military support. Um, but the budgetary aid is also equally perhaps as consequential. I don't know how much longer they have until you know their funds run out. Um, obviously the European Union came through passing the six billion, but my understanding, you know, that's over three years. And so what they get now is something like less than half of what they require for this year. So it's a it's a difficult position on the economic front. They might not have the ability to pay. The soldiers, the teachers, the, you know, all of the public services to keep the country running, that, you know, I guess the analogy would be that things would start crumbling behind the front. Um, What's your sense of where that all stands?
3: Yeah. So just to address the first question first, um, I think there is um, some serious concern in Ukraine uh, and perhaps elsewhere that uh, the Zelensky government is overstepping the authorities that it has as a result of martial law. I mean, this is a country at war. That and there is martial law. That Parliament passed. Um, these are extraordinary circumstances, and I think everybody understands that. Um, but I think there are, you know, as Bill noted, um, a lot of grumblings about some of the measures that have been taken. Um, you know, when it comes to press issues, particularly TV, where um, there is, you know, kind of one signal, uh, single um, uh, provider uh, for all of the stations, and. Opposition politicians are rarely, if ever, invited uh, Invited on. Um, opposition, tra- um, opposition members in uh, parliament, for example, need permission to travel abroad uh, and are not getting it. Uh, and so that's a real concern. And I have to say, you know, many of these people would be amplifying voices here in Washington and Bonn and Paris and London uh, for the Ukrainian cause. And I think uh, it's short sighted not to allow them uh, to travel so I I could go on, but I think there are some uh, some serious uh, concerns here and um, they need to be addressed. Um, And I guess before
0: before you pivot to the domestic piece, I mean, I this is something that is harder to talk about, I think, given the sensitivity of it, but it is. I mean, to your point, from people even watching from the outside, there are concerns about what's happening politically and the kind of dismissal of the I mean, there's been so many kind of indicators. And I mean, from a very academic perspective, I would say like when you study these countries that are at war, you have these leaders who view themselves as really like the only leader who's qualified and able to guide a country through difficult times. And sometimes then you take anti-democratic measures in the name, you know, with the intention of... Of leading your country through a difficult time, I guess that's something I'm really concerned about. And what, are you, what, if any tools do, does the United States and Europe have to ensure that Ukraine remains on a democratic path? I mean, so much of of the motivation, not it's a lot of the motivation, or at least in the Biden administration's framing, has been that we're supporting, uh, you know, an embattled democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's obviously really important that they maintain those democratic foundations. I mean, I I, I guess I it's a little a long intervention just to encourage you to talk a little bit more about some of the concerns and how we should be addressing them.
3: Yeah. So just I I think probably all four of us would agree that, you know, it is the right of, um, you know, the president of Ukraine to dismiss, um, you know, his commanding general. I mean, that that is his absolute right. Um, you know, whether it was a good idea or not is a different matter. And, you know, the scuttlebutt is that part of the reason that um, Zeluzhny was uh, dismissed was, as um, Bill was saying, that, you know, Zaluzhny was polling at 88 percent of, you know, trust among the Ukrainian people. And and um, Zelensky was at 66 uh, percent, which I would just know any American president would be proud to have. <laughs> um but it's a lot less than than 88% and um i think you know that was concerning and the scuttlebutt is that um that um Zeluzhny uh, you know had had some ambitions uh and was being supported by in those ambitions by former president Poroshenko now of course in in the opposition and so um you know i mean I, I'm not sure that I know what the truth is, um, but I, there's there's certainly a lot of rumors going on, and you know, which attests to what Bill was saying that politics is definitely back <laughs> in in Kyiv, um, you know, with uh, with with a vengeance. So, what can we do to um, to help the Ukrainians, um, you know, continue on even in these really difficult circumstances with fighting for their democracy, fighting against corruption, creating the rule of you know making the rule of law stronger, et cetera. Um, And so, you know, I think one thing we need to remember is that first and foremost, it's up to the Ukrainian people. We cannot want this more than they do. And they want it bad. They have told us and they have told themselves, right, in multiple elections, in two revolutions, um, you know, this war against Russia, how they want their future to look. They do not want to make the oligarchs rich again. They want rule of law. They want a future for their children. They want to be in Europe. And so that's what I'm putting you know, my money on. Um, I will not bet against the Ukrainian people. And I, I don't think uh, any of the rest of us would would uh, would either. And what we need to do is what we've been doing, you know, since independence and um, really, you know, all in since 2014, which is supporting what the people say they want and what successive governments have said they want. Although, as we know, it reform is hard. And it is, it is um, a generational process. It's not going to be one and done. The Ukrainians over time have made a lot of um, reforms. Uh, some of it has taken root. Some of you know sometimes there are steps backward. Um, you know two steps forward. It's hard, uh, and we need to keep on supporting that. And I think the biggest thing, the biggest incentive right now on this front is uh, what the EU offers. The EU is offering membership, and they're saying you know of course you have to um, harmonize. I don't know how many thousands, maybe it's even millions of regulations and laws and, you know, all the hard nitty gritty work of becoming a member of the EU. But there are also seven big honking principles, things that the Ukrainians need to do in terms of corruption, in terms of cleaning up the judicial sector, et cetera. And that, I think, provides the incentive, you know, not for the Ukrainian people who are all in on this. Um, But for government, um, the government to keep on moving forward in this way, that is crucially important.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The EU uh, accession process is so important. And I hope that the EU continues down this process of the like a staged accession where they can gradually kind of get access to more and more parts of the European Union instead of doing it with the kind of one shot thing. I, I think that's such an important point. And I hope that is something we don't talk about that much here in Washington. I mean, obviously, the EU leads on that, but there's all sorts of things that the U.S. could be doing to help Ukraine meet the criteria um, and other kind of ways to support the process. And I think, yeah, something that we should be talking about more. But Jim. Um,
1: could I uh, could I jump in on the, on that? You, you you mentioned about the EU process, but but let's talk real quick about the NATO process, that we're going to see in July, and um, well, we're hoping to see in July. You know, uh, I don't think uh, if you're in the, in the administration, you thought Vilnius was a great success. If you're outside the administration, you thought it was a horrible thing. And I was there at Vilnius uh, on the side events, and I, I'm you know it was horrible from just from just a few feet away from where all this was happening. And and so I'm hoping that we're going to see a different uh, result, a different plan, a different approach, uh, and not as far maybe as Ukraine wants, but it's going to be a definite step towards that end. Uh, so I was wondering if you all had any comment on the summit coming up, what you feel we can do to uh, to give an extra push. You know, Masha, back to what you're saying, there's some things that we can do and there's some things that the U.S. can do better. And I think coming up with a better approach of a Ukraine NATO membership uh, arrangement is is one of those things that the U.S. should put its shoulder behind. So I was wondering if you guys had any ideas,
2: Jim. Uh, great question. Glad you asked. Um, there is something we could offer. Uh, something that the NATO summit leaders can offer Ukraine. They have to think about what it is they come out of the of the summit with. Um, and and before you know, in two thousand eight, and then as you say in Vilnius. They just made the statement that, yep, your future is in NATO. Ukraine's future is in NATO. That's just not good enough. Um, Now, no one expects that a country at war gets membership right away. The Ukrainians understand that. However, there's something in the middle. There is something in the middle. What the the summit could do uh, in July, 75th anniversary summit, right here in Washington, Um, And the leaders could say to the Ukrainians, start the negotiations. You mentioned the EU. The EU did exactly that. The EU said, you're going to be a member and start the negotiations to membership. And the NATO summit should say the same thing. Start the negotiations. There's a lot to be worked out. And you mentioned that there are steps that can be taken, um, even in the EU process. Well, there are steps that can be taken and and need to be negotiated in the NATO accession process. But start it. Start the negotiations so so that they can say, yep, we're in it, we're on it, and, and those negotiations can take place in the NATO Ukraine Council um in Brussels. And they can do that, and they can get started right away. I
1: think that's exactly right. Uh Masha, any view on your side?
3: I agree with Bill.
0: I yeah, do I too. Need- When you think of, I mean, again, yeah, you just think about the EU process again, like you, it's a long ways until they get veto and a full seat at the table, but you can, there's so many incremental steps. They get access to the free market. They get, you know, there's different parts of the organization that they could access before, and that falls short of the final kind of veto full seat at the table. And I think it's such a, an important model, I guess the really, um, I, you know, I shouldn't even ask. Um, But any uh, indication, Bill, that anything like that is taking, uh, getting any traction, any kind of reactions that you're getting to that idea?
2: So, Andrea, great. So just this morning, um, I was across the street here um, uh, having this conversation. It's not the first time I've had this conversation. And, you know, some of our colleagues uh, um, who have been pushing this idea have also been having these conversations. And the short answer is yes. The, what, here's what we know. Here's what I, uh, what is very clear is they're grappling with this question exactly. What are we going to do at the summit? What are we going to do for Ukraine, about Ukraine, with Ukraine at the summit? And so that's on the table right now. Um, several people, not just me, but uh, many on this, you know, Masa, you and Andrea, we've also talked about this. Um, and this idea of beginning the negotiations is on the table. And you know, I also had the same conversation day before yesterday um, at the NSC. Um, and they um, acknowledged that it's out there. Um, they acknowledged that if they were, you know, that they would have- Acknowledgement
0: to is the first step, right? <laughs>
2: it's the first step. At this first step, um, uh, they know it's out there. They know it's an option. Um, and they know that you know pretty senior people um, uh, are, are not there yet. Um, and I suggested to them that's their job that's their job to get people there. Um, so so I'll just say that I know that debate is going on um if there are if there are people who support this idea that can push it, uh, I think I think it's possible. What
0: about on the European side?
2: We remember you know better than I that um at, at Vilnius, um there was a strong move by a lot of a lot of uh, european members of nato uh to offer apparently membership um at that time um and there were two main holdouts you know americans and the germans yeah um and uh and we we give all this attention to uh alliance unity well we could have had alliance unity if we had just accepted the the, what most of them wanted. Now, I don't know where the where the Hungarians were, and I don't know where the Turks were at that point. But I do know the answer to your question, Andrea. That there were many NATO European members of NATO who were ready to go forward um, uh, at at Vilnius, um, and the opposition by the Americans uh, and the Germans, I mean, even the French, even the French were were ahead of us um, uh, in, in in this one. So, uh, so I think it's possible.
3: Yeah. And I would just add, there's an opportunity to make history here for the 75th anniversary of the Washington Treaty um, held in Washington. And I think the administration should move forward on this, just as Bill outlined.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we're at time. I so appreciate that in this conversation on, you know, marking the two year anniversary of the invasion that we it was a more optimistic conversation than i it was expecting us to have maybe i should have expected given that you two were the guests and your penchant towards optimism but with all of the doom and the gloom and kind of the anxiety that is hanging out there around these issues i really appreciate your analysis and your framing and your yeah your the kind of pragmatic approach um, to making progress on these issues. It was really refreshing. And we uh, c- kind of ended in a different place than I thought. And I I so appreciate that. So thank you both. Thank,
2: thank you, you, Andrea. I always follow Masha. I always follow her.
3: <laughs> and you know, I've got to tell you, um, you can't see these, um, but I've got socks on that say, be brave like Ukraine. One's yellow, one's blue. And I think that's all we need to do. We need to be principled. We need to be brave. We need to support the brave Ukrainian people.
0: Perfect. The end. Thank you both. (laughs) Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.